0: This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 13.
1: Always start with the customer. And I'm not talking about the customer inside the company. I'm talking about the customer of the business. The only thing that matters to a business is that the customer is having their needs met. And so if you can sit around a table of any sort and someone's sharing a problem with you and you can tie it back to, how is this gonna help us serve the customer better?
0: You're gonna instantly be adding value to them. How can human-centered design improve your employee experience? Why is wellness important in enabling a culture of high performance? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR Podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is John Foster. John's a forward-looking leader who has spent much of his career leading HR for high-growth companies. He also had the honor of being Hulu's first chief people officer, where he was instrumental in building the talent and people practices during the organization's formative years. John also served as the Chief People Officer for IDEO, a leading global design and innovation firm, and it was in this role that John was introduced to human-centered design, a mindset and methodology that has transformed how he thinks about and approaches HR. Most recently, John was the Chief People Officer for TrueCar. John's also the founder of Gamut Labs, which he started as a platform to advise companies and build tools that help people learn and grow. At his core, John's an organization designer and architect who helps people and organizations perform at their best. During our conversation, John and I discuss why HR leaders need to think like architects, why you should prototype your HR solutions, the four key elements of human-centered design and how to apply them to your organization, and why he believes wellness is the foundation for human performance. John, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here. And thanks for having me on. It's exciting, JP. Thanks. It is great to have you on the podcast today. Let's get into a little bit. Now, I have been a fan and followed your career for a while, but what I didn't know about you is that you actually wanted to be an architect growing up, but ended up in HR. So, And I've heard you compare HR to being an architect. Tell us more about why you feel that way. Well, you know, it's an interesting, like probably most people wouldn't put the two
1: jobs together in any conversation. But I think as I got further along in my career and I've always been part of helping people learn and grow, that's kind of been my main theme from an early stage until now. But at some point I realized what we're really trying to do is create conditions for others to succeed where they can be successful. So you're building an environment for people to perform well or to be efficient or whatever the might, the outcome might be. And you know, honestly, like it's, it's like, Same systems, process, tools, you're putting them all together into one cohesive design and then people work in it. So it's very similar to building a house where people live and you want them to have a great place to host people and have a kitchen and all that. So there's a lot of similarities.
0: There is. It's a really good analogy. And I actually wish more HR leaders thought of themselves as architects, right? I mean, we talk about being, who has to be a culture architect, but really thinking that systems theory and how everything fits is so important. Is that something you developed over time? Or did you have that feeling early on in your career? I know it definitely came very,
1: actually, probably within the last couple of years that I put it together. Because somebody asked me the question, what did you want to be in eighth grade? And I said, architect. And then I was also in construction for a while. And my first job was selling architectural panels. So I was around building. Then I was I was actually a carpenter, and a, an apprentice carpenter, and helped a friend with his um, historic renovation company. So I actually did do the work. And. I find that what, what I do on a regular basis, I'm building. At Hulu, we said we were builders. That was Jason Kyler, the CEO's big thing is we're builders. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm a builder, then you need somebody to design things. So I guess that just sort of eventually came clear to me that that's what we're doing.
0: I love that. We are architects. We're builders of culture, of leaders, right? Processes, practices, all that is is so important. You also were the CHRO of IDEO, which is a company that I'm a huge fan of. I think that's when we actually first met, you know, many, many moons ago. For people who don't know, IDEO is a global design company. It really, in my perspective, really taught the world design thinking. But tell me, like, what did you learn from that time there? And how has it impacted how you approach HR? Well, I mean, it's
1: absolutely transformed the way I think about my job and my role in a company and my profession. So, I'd say, you know, I tell people I I didn't go on into academia after my master's degree because I wanted to do things. I wanted to build and make. And IDEO is a making company. Their premise was, you know, one of their phrases they use is build to think. And they have this concept of prototyping where you put something in a very rough form in front of people and let them interact with it. And then you learn from that and you can make it better and iterate. And so this idea of building and prototyping, iterating, got my attention pretty early in my career. They had their famous shopping cart video where they showed a prototype of how you might change a shopping cart if you were going to design one from scratch. It was a pretty epic thing for their PR, but I saw it and I was teaching and as an OD professional, I was teaching a lot of creativity and innovation classes at companies that weren't necessarily very innovative. And so I had my eye on IDEO as a fanboy. kind of loved what they were doing and consumed all their stuff. And one day, one of my former colleagues sent me a note and said, IDEO's got a head of HR job open, you should apply. And they had looked for quite a few different people, I guess. I was not an experienced, this is going to be my first big step up. And I came from OD and I even had a boss tell me, I'll never be a CHRO because I take too many risks and I'm not like, I I would be (laughs) unsafe, I guess, from a policy perspective. So long story short, I got the interview, I convinced the a recruiter that I was actually the kind of person I would really want. And that worked out. And so it really helped me finish out my thinking and my education and what I now think of myself truly as a designer. I can only say that because I think I, I had enough experience at IDEO to really understand what that means.
0: And I think it is so interesting because HRs come full circle where design thinking is in vogue, but you were doing it. Back then, and that's I've obviously changed your HR approach, it sounds like. Talk to me more how you have brought prototyping to life. Cause I think a lot of people say that how do you do that with a benefits program or something else we have to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it can be any single thing you're making can be prototyped. And and I mean, again, just to be so clear about this, when I was working at Levi's, my boss wanted us to build training programs that were in binders and they were perfect before we ever put them out there because you would be judged by how good and complete it was. What I'd say is that's impossible. And why not just get a bunch of people in a room on a whiteboard, sketch out what you think you're going to say and work through your storyboard, so to speak, or your thought outline and see how people react and what kinds of questions they have and whether or not it's relevant. So what prototyping really does is brings you closer to your users faster and you get instant feedback on whether they think you're doing something that's useful or not. And the premise of human centered design or design thinking is that you're trying to solve a problem for a user. So they may not know the answer to what they want. They may not even know they have a problem. But if you can capture um, some experience with them in their environment and show them an idea that might make their day better with a simple prototype, sometimes it's just paper, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's a model, then people give you really good feedback and you can take that and move into making something more formal that you can scale afterwards.
0: Next, you were actually the CHRO at Hulu, Hulu's first CHRO and what it was like to build that organization through that fast growth. Yeah, it's it
1: was, I still think of that as my maybe my most, I, I carry more pride about our work at, ID, or at Hulu than I do of anywhere else. And I think it's because we did build everything from scratch. And what I had done at IDEO was learned about design and IDEO itself is a professional services firm and pretty stable and not going to change a whole lot. So I decided I wanted to get into early stage companies where I could help build them. From the ground up and I got very lucky that the right time and right place with Hulu, there were about 120 people when I got there. They were very well funded through a joint venture. It was just a race car ready to drive, but it needed a bunch of people to figure out what the track was really. And so we, I got to go there and take it from 125 to about 1,200 people. I was there about three years, so it was very fast, very tech-driven. But what was interesting was it was designed as a company to be a disruptor to Hollywood. And it was coming from, you know, our our CEO was from Amazon. We had a tech footprint. We were trying to be more, you know, Silicon Valley than Hollywood. And so we had a remit to do things differently and to be really excellent. And that's the other thing I got from Hulu was excellence as a value is a really important component
0: of building something great. You talked about being different, right, and actually being a disruptor. Is there any examples you can share around how you disrupted HR or some traditional processes at Hulu that you know, may surprise people?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because it's been a long time now. So some of the things I'm going to say will sound maybe not so cool anymore, but the term employee experience was new in 2010, in 20, 2000, I think I left IDEO in 2010 and got to Hulu and IDEO had used the word consumer experience. And I was like, well, let's use the word employee experience. They're consumers of this organization. We're building a great organization. Then the people that work there should think of it as an experience. And that's a systems view of the company in a way that typically HR had not been set up to do. HR was more of a function and a sort of risk management process. Certainly hiring was something that was really under all sorts of innovation at the time. This was when Jobvite was a new um, ATS and before that was Taleo. And like, they didn't do group decision-making. Only a recruiter could manage and nobody could see the data or see the kind of profiles. So we pushed the envelope around a lot of that and tried to make things more collaborative. Our performance management system was one of the first ones that was no ratings. That was very controversial at the time. And it was still being debated as to whether or not you could do something without ratings. And we did something completely without ratings. And, you know, I had to convince the executive team that that was going to be a good idea and why. We did... um, Another thing that was new was health benefits, bringing something together around well-being. We had a well-being stipend that let employees spend 600 bucks on whatever they want if it helped them feel better about life. And then they reported it back to the company. And I remember doing a presentation to our executive team of the various things people had purchased. And it ranged from new mattresses to plane tickets to visit their family to skiing passes to marathon entries and things like that. And that was pretty radical then. You know, now hopefully right. everybody's doing that kind of stuff. But that
0: those were those were new then. Frankly, for a lot of companies, that still would be new. But you're right. I mean, some of those have gone more mainstream, or at least we talk about them. I'm not sure we're that far along. You know, some of that stuff is still really cutting edge for a lot of organizations, right? Yeah. And I, I mean,
1: it also reminds me of time. You know, we were we were calling ourselves at IDO uh a flexible to so the idea of unlimited time off is kind of an interesting topic. I always I have a little pet peeve I'll share with everybody, which is It's not unlimited. If you have unlimited time off, you're just not at work, right? Who would choose to go in if it was unlimited? You have flexible time off when you can decide when, where, how, and work with others to determine how you're going to cover your work while you can still take breaks. And it takes a much deeper ethic of maturity between the collaboration of the team and the manager to to figure that stuff out. But I think it's gotten turned in, some of these things get turned into these band-aids and, and perks that are just slapped out there as PR. And they're not actually run well. And there's downsides if you don't do it well. People have seen that this idea of unlimited PTO lends itself to nobody talking about it and nobody taking any. So then they get burned out and they don't even get the accrued time off. That's never been what we were trying to do with this. you know. So I do think we are still a long way away and and there's a lot of work to do to get people to think differently about what it means to be like more reciprocal in a relationship with employees versus more paternalistic.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight, John. And you're right about unlimited PTO versus flexibility. I think there's a lot we could unpack there. But you also, spent time at you know, Hulu and then you really have, you've made some different impacts at other high growth companies. And just talk to me more about why high growth companies are so interesting to you and why you've been drawn to them. Well, I guess if we go back to the architecture thing, I did renovation construction with historically
1: significant houses in Ohio, which means they were built in the late 1800s and new people moved in. This was a long time ago. So it's like when the houses were 100 years old. So I'll let you do the math about when this was. But the, um, the idea was they'd want to preserve the historic value of the home and the, you know, sort of the bones, as they call it but add new conveniences of space and you know electronics and other types of modern living things. And that's really, really hard. To retrofit an old building with new conveniences to the standard that someone might have if they built new is just a different kind of problem solving than if you get to build from scratch and start at the beginning and lay things out the way you think they should be in the first place. So I was just really hungry to move from having worked in older companies that I was helping renovate to brand new companies that I could help build from scratch. So that was, that's what was the motivation. So, so you're looking for, space. you're
0: looking for land slab and some foundation, maybe, and maybe some framing, but no drywall, yeah.
1: Mild open space that needs to be figured out. You know, some of these, some of these companies really are like now I'm talking to a guy yesterday, um, who's a, you know, web 3.0 blockchain company and none of the concepts we use in it's in a traditional hierarchical organization even apply, including things like customers and revenue. So like, if that's, if that's the case, then what kind of company are you going to build? How do you build it? That's like way out on the edge. So
0: that is out on the edge. You have so much time in these high growth companies. I wonder, can you give us, for people listening, our next gen HR leaders, what advice would you have for working in a high growth company and wanting to have more impact?
1: Well, so my very best advice about being successful in this function period is always start with the customer. And I'm not talking about the customer inside the company. I'm talking about the customer of the business. And there's all this like fun intellectual discussion about strategy versus culture and HR owns culture. So therefore you're significant. I'm like, it has nothing to do with anything. The only thing that matters to a business is that the customer is having their needs met. And so if you can sit around a table of any sort and someone's sharing a problem with you and you can tie it back to how is this going to help us serve the customer better? You're going to instantly be adding value to the company in ways that are facilitative and sort of energetic and catalytic because people lose track of that. You get stuck in the weeds of all the stuff you're doing and getting bogged down. If you can just simply bring it back to how is this going to help us solve our customer? Just make it clean and clear what you should probably do in that case.
0: That's great advice. And one thing you're also really known for is you have been, I guess, on a mission to build a human-centered organization. And along those lines, you stated, and I've seen some articles you talked about that the traditional organization is failing leaders and at times harming employees. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, so most most leaders just want an organization that's going to help them accomplish their goals. This is fundamental back to like how do we set, solve our customers' needs? We have to build a, an organization that can do that. Whether it's building software or you know services or some kind of product or manufactured goods, you still need. I go back to Henry Ford built the assembly line because he wanted to sell low cost, high volume cars. He wanted everybody in America to be able to afford a car. So he had to come up with a really efficient way to build them. So he built this organization that we now use today in most of our work. It's very mechanistic. And at the time it was brilliant for about 10 years. And then it immediately started to cause all these downsides because people were kind of broken down into their component parts of being a widget. They were treated poorly. They were. I I just learned this recently. The first word, a lot of the immigrants that moved into the Michigan area and were working there at the time, there was a lot of European immigration. The first word they'd learn in the factory was hurry. So, you know, time motion studies were like, you need to move fast and you do the same thing over and over again. And that's still pervasive today. And yet we're in 21st century dealing with all kinds of different conditions. We're not trying to mass produce automobiles. We're trying to build new software that solves really hard problems. That's creative work. It's customer support work where you have to solve problems with people. That's empathetic work. It's not easy to run a manufacturing model and accomplish those problems. So that's how it's failing leaders. And it's harming people because we're getting people to be overwhelmed at work. They're overstressed. They're not properly cared for. Their well well-being is, is being disassociated with their lives. And there's so much we can do to go back in time and say what makes humans successful is probably not a manufacturing model. And so let's sync up. Like, what problem are we trying to solve as a business, and is there another model or other ways we could design the organization that don't have these traditional power control kind of internalistic things built into them?
0: And I think there's a ton of opportunity there. As you talk about that, but there's sort of, I guess, the industrial manufacturing, the old school economy kind of roles, right? We still have to, we do have to produce things in mass at times, and then there's this sort of burgeoning, growing, maybe not right now with what's happening in our economy and higher inflation, but technology is not going away. Software and tech has changed our lives dramatically. And so there's almost like two different kinds of organizations. In some ways, it's a haves and have not situations when you think about the employee experience. How do you reconcile that as you think about this?
1: Well, I actually think there's probably more than two. I've created this sort of artificial drum between what I call a traditional organization and a human-centered one. And probably in between, if you just use that vector of One's more about, you know, consistency and it's really good at like efficiency and scale at low cost. That still has a place in the world for certain types of business situations. But when you have a situation where you're trying to solve something unknown or build something new, efficiency maybe is less, less urgent than maybe effectiveness or connectivity and collaboration are more useful than breaking people apart and making sure they stay focused. So I think it really comes down to, yes, I think the haves and have nots are when you when you can treat someone with reciprocity and say, do you agree to do this work? Like I've, I've been in labor, I've worked, I've painted houses, I've worked in food service, I was a waiter. I can agree to do that work. And it might not be the most stimulating work I've done before, but I know what my contribution needs to be and I know what I'm going to get for that contribution. And when you you don't have that level of clarity and expect kind of rotate or evolve and people just tell you to go faster, that's where I, I think that's just poor management. That's not even org design. That's just, you know, lack of clarity around what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that back up because I think the other piece is that everyone deserves to have autonomy and control of their schedule or what they're doing. To your point of they are, this is the job I'm choosing to do. I enjoy it. it. Everyone makes a contribution no matter if you're on the shop floor or if you're in the C suite or your design software. I mean, everyone makes a contribution that matters and the wellness of those people matter and I think we saw that even more during the pandemic of how much more stress people are under who are doing some of that frontline labor or more of that traditional organization. But talk to us more about what it means to have a human centered organization and then we'd love to hear about what organizations are operating that way today.
1: Yeah, well, I think it comes down to to a few things. I think there's four main ingredients that you can this is at the org design level if you're going to build a and it doesn't mean you're building the whole organization if you're going to build a product a process a program a tool maybe it's just something as simple as you said a benefit or an offer letter or a time off policy Um, i think you need to think about four main ingredients one is the culture of your organization have you intentionally designed a, a way of being together that's supportive of your business and then use those guidelines, those values to make sure your program or process is in accordance with them. So you need to know what those are. Leadership to me is a misused concept in the manufacturing world. Director or manager is someone who can control things. A leader is a member of a group. To really be a leader, you have to be collaborative and humans are most are at their best when they're actually working with others. So I call leadership. And ad- so if you want to see that ingredient come through one of these products, you have to actually think about how are we going to collaborate to make the outcome at its best. The next one is talent. Um, you have to understand the skills and attributes and interests and availability of the people that you're working with. So design that in as well. And then finally, um, this idea of dialogue, it's not a one-way, it's, it's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. And you need to think about, are we both leading people with expectations and getting back from them how that works for them. So if you think about all four of those things when you build something, it's going to be human-centered.
0: So that's what people need. Well, I think the dialogue piece and the way you're thinking about leadership, I guess would really differentiate that to maybe other models, right? I'm not sure there's always enough dialogue, enough collaboration as we design something. Too often we get in a room, it's like, what's the highest paid person think of this? It's like, well, are they the user? Probably not. Give me some examples, John, I guess, where you've seen this come to life. Are organizations doing this well today? Well, I think I think there's
1: places where organizations are doing this well. I think some of the professional services businesses like uh like Deloitte and even Microsoft is starting to at least position around this. I think Salesforce, here's a good example. Apple and Salesforce, and these are I'm not inside either organization, so take this for with a grain of salt because it's through stuff I've read. But when we went to the return to work scenario, Apple made a a mandate that was across the company. You need to come back in these days and you can be flexible on these days. Salesforce made a policy that said your team can decide when and how and how you want to work. So you they pushed the authority to make that decision to a 12 to 15 person group to make that decision versus saying everybody's going to do it this way and when you're at a scale of an organization like Apple with with all the complexity they have that's just it seems to me that wasn't very thoughtful in its in its application and and you end up with this one size fits all kind of thing that doesn't really work so i think that that i'm not sure why that would be at a cl- I mean Apple as a design company really gets user centered design better than maybe most companies so i don't know what's underneath all that but that's a good example of just one one's human-centered because it puts the power in the team to decide. It trusts those people to make a good decision. The other is is product-centered. We need you to do this so our product will be better, I guess. I'm not sure what I would call it, but it's not human-centered.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it takes also courage and really some confidence in your teams to trust them enough to have the autonomy at that level. And I think that is One of the hardest things you see in organizations and leaders, I think the attribution error of like, well, they're going to make a mistake. You know, they don't know what they're doing, but not they are going to be those frontline employees or managers. And the reality is they're going to make great decisions, right? They understand what's happening probably better than people.
1: Well, they might. I mean, I don't blame people for being worried about decisions. So, you, you like, I've worked with a lot of founders and a lot of high performing teams. And if you look at athletics, you, you know, these are people that care a lot about the details and the outcomes. So I believe that you need to think differently. I think that the problem in all of this is an ingredient called power. And and I think what happens is we don't understand where power is inside of all these ingredients. So it can be inside culture, it can be inside leadership, it can be inside talent. It's very similar. This idea came to me when I my daughter was diagnosed with celiac. And we started to recognize where gluten is. And it's in a lot of places that you just don't realize. And it can make you sick because it creates, it creates inflammation. And then I took it back to something even more common, which is sugar. And we know that added sugar in our food is probably not great for us. We don't really need it, but it tastes good. So we just keep doing it. And it's cheap and it adds a lot of calories. And so there's a lot of reasons why sugar got put into manufactured food. But if you start to unpack that and say, well, wait a sec, can we eat sugar-free and be happy and healthy and still have cheap food? Probably. We just got good at using sugar. So I think what we have to do with these organizations is go back to that same policy and say, is power creeping in here somewhere? And that's where the control problem is. If you have an agreement with someone, it can be explicit, but you're expecting the other person to deliver. If they don't deliver, there's still accountability and you can still like make changes. So if you're not tracking to where you're going, you don't have to force people with power. You can use your agreement to reconsider and make a different choice as you go forward. It's subtle, but it's a pretty big difference. I think that's really the fundamental difference.
0: That is a big difference. And thinking about the human centered organization, what are the implications for next gen HR leaders? What skills and capabilities does this require?
1: Well, I'll just go back to the to the guy I was speaking with yesterday who's a similar generation guy as me running a web three uh blockchain company and he said to me i don't know how to do this but everybody that works here does and so if you're a younger generation up-and-coming professional you probably are more comfortable with power-free operation than anybody that grew up in my generation and we're talking about like the kind of heroes that people had in the 80s that were corporate leaders were people like Jack Welch. He was the most famous CEO ever. That guy exudes power. I don't think people growing up in today's world are experiencing that the same way I did growing up. So I think maybe you are already more naturally inclined to working in a collaborative, open source way. Um, the the media that you experience is so different. We got to watch whatever television was put on for us and we liked it, right? <laughs> like, Or you <laughs> changed the channel once or you did something else. But now you can stream so many different things and choose from so many different things. So I think there's some fundamental world experience that allows today's generation. So capitalize on that. And when you notice something is overly controlling or too paternalistic, that's a big insight. and You can use that to help make a way forward for companies. That's related to what I was just saying. Everything else is, I'd go back to prototyping, try stuff experience jobs, ask a lot of questions, be curious, show up, you know, deliver. Those are basic work ethics that really go a long way. You don't have to like every step of your journey, but you do have to finish the day. And so I just say follow through and build a reputation for getting things done and you'll have no problem finding
0: a job in HR. you talk about wellness being the foundation for human performance. And I think that's a really powerful message. And mental health and wellness has gained in importance and visibility after the pandemic. I think it's always been important; maybe it was under the surface. And you have said that this is the foundation for human performance. What's HR's role in bringing this to life?
1: It's a couple of things. I think so. I was I was talking to a client today who is a twenty-five person series, you know, seed series company, and they need to build their first time off policy. And they were starting to talk about how hard that is. And I said, you know, it doesn't have to be a policy. It has to be a culture where people can speak to each other and discuss options and decide together. And then you'll have flexible time off, like because then people can actually. So one thing HR can do is try not to over control things, try not to get paternalistic and provide too many guardrails. And so it's like the opposite of the HR I grew up in was like, let's put guardrails on everything. And will keep people from getting hurt. I was. I think that if you overdefine the exceptions, then you can never get to a place where actually most of the time, normal people can be well together because it's a natural instinct. And the second thing I think you can do is be clear what it is. I think adults mature a lot in their twenties and thirties, and companies have the perfect opportunity to help people learn and grow by giving them the right kind of resources. One of the things I built a while back is this program called TRUE. And the word TRUE is about alignment. And it's very much, is your life in alignment with what you want it to be? And in order to do that, you need to know what you want it to be. And when you're 25, most of this, at least I didn't really know what I wanted it to be. So where HR can help is to consistently put programs and resources in place that help people explore who they are and what they want to be. Wellness isn't a massage or you know, a sugar-free cookie or an extra hour off. I mean, those are helpful. But wellness is really, do I know what I want and am I laying my
0: life with it? And there's many ways that HR can help with that. Is there advice you might have for next-gen HR leaders in terms of taking care of themselves, their own personal wellness? It can, it can be hard to be an HR. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all,
1: if you want a resource, I actually have one on my website. You have to ping me so you can get into the private section but it's gamut.la and you can go there and there's a workbook I've built for this thing. It's called Be True and it helps you take an inventory of who you are and what you want to do and then start practicing things that help you behave in ways that will keep you well. But the secret in there is don't do it alone. Have some colleagues and friends, like when we're, especially if you're a a remote or distributed kind of workplace where you don't see people, make sure you include in your day interactions like I'm doing with you, JP, like this is not work for me. This is connecting and it's building my relationship with another person, you in particular. And it helps me have a more rich experience during my week. As they say, all work and no play makes Jack a very dull boy. And if you want to watch The Shining to get a really good example of that, that's another shout out to a movie with Jack Nicholson where he types that a million times because he's really sick. So don't spend your whole day on the computer, never doing something else. Get up and take a walk, connect to other people, find a hobby, play kickball. You know, it sounds really simple and it actually is, but it's just, it's easy to get stuck in your own rut. So make sure your calendar is not set by other people, put blocks in it. These are some pretty simple things. Make sure you put a block in there to take a break and have lunch. That is part. So I'll just go back to work is life. It's not work-life balance. That's a false dichotomy. Humans have always wanted to work as part of their living. It's part of what we do. We want to be stretched. We want to grow. We want to build things. We want to do things. That's part of life. It's not the other way around. Life is not part of work. So you still need to live through the day and not let work take up so much of your time that you're no longer living.
0: I mean, really good advice, John. I think so many good nuggets in there. It's different for each person. But one thing I think is really powerful and sometimes, you know, managers don't like it when their, their team maybe talks a lot and maybe they kind of gossip a little bit, you know, the managers like, well, I think they're talking about me or, you know, this happened, but you need that, you know, especially in HR, you need to have somebody you can call up and say, I had a really rough day, had a really bad ER security. issue. This manager was a jerk to me, or, you know, I'm just having a tough time. It's really important to have those friends, especially when you're in that kind of remote work environment, but it's going to be different for each of us. So find that for you is the important message I think that you were talking about.
1: The other thing I would say is like that social connection with peers. A lot of people in HR think of their work as heroic or private or, you know, there's a lot of tough topics we run across and there's a lot of really deep emotional stuff. I think it's really important for your actual HR team to get together and share how you're feeling and how this stuff affects you. When I was working at Truecard during the major elements of some of the social justice issues we had to deal with and also at the same time COVID, we spent more time together talking about how things felt to us than maybe we had historically, but it was really
0: powerful. You get to
1: know people at a deeper level and share each other's concerns and give each other support. So that's definitely important.
0: Yeah, I think the one benefit, I guess, of the pandemic is that we are now into other's living rooms or offices and there was more of a personal thing that happened, right? We saw people at families and dogs and significant others. It's like, hey, great, we're not just a cog in the machine. I see you from eight to five and then you go home. Right. So I think that was a benefit, but it also can be isolating. So I really appreciate you bringing that back up. All right, last question for you, John. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I would pick from some things I've
1: already ter- tried to distill and filter out, which is I think human-centeredness will drive success. But the companies that understand how to nurture and tap into Natural human strengths are going to be more creative, higher performing companies. So pay attention to the human element and try to remove the mechanistic industrial language from what you're doing. And it will naturally get you to a place where I think, I think we're, I think the modern era is really much more about unleashing humans potential and a lot less about mechanisms and industrial thinking.
0: John, I really appreciate that the human centered design and human centered organization. John Foster, thank you for joining the Future of HR podcast.
1: My pleasure, JP. Thanks
0: for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. My thanks again to John for sharing his insights on human-centered design, rapid prototyping, and the importance of wellness. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes, subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes, and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Sohee Jun, who is not only an Amazon best-selling author, but also a top leadership coach and leadership development expert. In our conversation, Sohi and I will discuss her advice for aspiring entrepreneurs and external consultants, why launch, learn, and iterate should be your personal innovation philosophy, and our insights from coaching high potential female leaders. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.